Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 546. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a very proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please go and visit their site, evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is legitimately a roller coaster. It's with Dan Egan. Dan is the world-renowned skier and pioneer of extreme sports and specifically extreme skiing. He is known for skiing the most remote regions of the world and has been named one of the most influential skiers of our time. He's been a central feature, along with his brother, in a number of amazing Warren Miller films, including Born to Ski, Vertical Reality, and Future Retro. Dan's also the author of the book 30 Years in a White Haze, Dan Egan's story of worldwide adventure and the evolution of extreme skiing. In this conversation with Dan, we discuss his upbringing, some of his feats and experiences, including how he spent 38 hours without food and water, trapped 17,000 feet high in Russia, how he balances adventure, risk and safety, the nature of flow, the battle of freestyle to gain legitimacy, and a whole lot more. You'll find all the show notes, as usual, on minterdial.com. And if you have a moment, go and drop in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Dan Egan, well, I am privileged to have you on my show. I got to meet you thanks to our mutual friend, Simon Kelton. So I got to hear your story live in a one of the quirkier spots in London. And um, you have had quite the life. I also am uh, lucky enough to have a signed copy of your book, 30 Years in a White Haze. Dan, at, uh, at this point in your life, how would you say, or how would you describe who is Dan Egan? Uh, yeah, it's a good, good question. Um, you know, as, as I think you can understand, some you look back and uh, I'm lucky, man, I've, I've lived multiple lifetimes in uh, multiple different situations, mainly around the things that I've really my parents taught me before I was 10 years old, you know, to ski, to sail, uh, to kick a football, soccer ball. Uh, I've been lucky to be able to sort out a living uh, pursuing those passions. Uh, and of course, there is no sort of book or or roadmap for how to do that. It's a high wire act, actually. And uh, so I, I, when I look back, I, and if I describe myself, I, you know, I, I'm just a guy who's good at a lot of things. And, uh, and I'm lucky enough to love a lot of things. Well, yeah, it's somewhat similar to me. I, I tend to say I've done a lot of things, but I'm not great at any of them. You, on uh -huh. the other hand, sir, are a master of what you do. And um, the, the expression of a cat with nine lives seems to seem appropriate. How do you describe, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, all of us are born for a certain time, destiny, uh, fate, I believe in that, and uh, surviving the things that have survived mountain storms at, at altitude, uh, avalanches, cornice breaking, uh, sailboat, sailboat journeys through storms. Um, you know, it's never been my time. I, I've always felt like secure in those situations that 
that there was I was going to make it through it somehow, uh, even when it looked you know darkest. And and so I, I feel that sort of thing. And um, and I love it. I, I think it, it's about people. It's about the people you journey with, the people you trust, the people you get to know uh, during those adventures. To what extent would you say it's the people you know who allowed the destiny to be that truth? Yeah, of course. Um, there's all different types of messengers that you bump into along the way. And uh, I, I think that, you know, when you when you talk about uh, persevering, it, it, you just can't persevere when things are good, right? The, the whole idea of perseverance is when things are hard. And what I've found with a lot of projects, uh, whether it's been traveling to the Arctic or when we were going behind uh, the Eastern Bloc when it first opened up, uh, you know, going to altitude, at some point it looked like the trip would be doomed and and not work. Uh, a sponsor would pull out or, or something would happen. And usually at that point, I thought, wow, you know what, this is going to be okay. Because at that moment, when it was at the dark, I'm like, well, it can only go up. It can only get better. And, and typically it did. So whether something got lost on an airplane or somebody missed a flight or, you know, all those sorts of things that can go wrong at that moment was actually the point in which it turned and kind of, we broke through because we persevered. And, and I think that's, that's kind of the key to it. You know, I talk to, as you know, I do a lot of speaking and, and talking to younger people, uh, you, you have to find joy, not happiness. It's joy, right? Because it, it's easy to say, oh, I'm not happy or I want to be happy, but, but what's the joy? What's, what's, what's the journey bringing you? What, where's the adventure going? And, uh, and persevering in those moments where it looks, looks bleak, uh, that's the joy. If I'm to understand you correctly, then joy is something bigger than happiness? Uh, for sure. You know, uh, uh, knowing what your joy is, you know, and what, what it's anchored in happiness is fleeting. Of course, you know, happiness, particularly if you tied material things, uh, or people, uh, expectations, uh, it's going to let you down. Uh, you have to anchor your joy in something greater. I, it's been a, it's been a mission statement of mine since a very, very long time that, uh, to attach myself to people in things that are bigger than me. That's always been the goal. Uh, it can't just be me. I need to anchor to something that's that's bigger than me, that's going to bring some sort of transformation, some sort of expansion, something bigger. Uh, as a professional skier, that was either a sponsor or a filmmaker, right, who had an audience uh, that, that allowed me to expand um, in business, uh, partnering with people that had other expertise that brought other things to the to the table. So... I think that's a really big one for people. A lot of times people don't want to partner with things that are bigger than them. They're intimidated by that. Is there an element of humility in that acceptance? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, 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 it's amazing, right? The ego, because uh, we need it. We have to survive. You know, it, it sort of keeps you going. Um, but the humi humility uh, that, that you don't know at all, that, that, that you're going to learn something, that somebody's going to provide a pathway for you. Um, I, I look at that as a non-judgment. Um, 
as long as I stay without passing judgment on a people, places, or things, then I might appear humble, but actually I'm seeking something else. Uh, and I try not to let the judgment. And of course, it's brutal, right? It's hard. Uh, it's hard not to wake up and judge the weather. Uh, but but staying non-judgmental allows that pathway to open up uh, because I don't know what I don't know. And if I judge it, all of a sudden it looks like I know. You're sitting on top of it. Um, yeah. So I want to go back to something you said, Dan, which is that um, the way I interpreted it is that your survival has been linked to destiny, uh, which I am thinking means you don't probably believe in free will. It's like, it's like these are, I'm, I, I survived because it wasn't my time because there is some bigger force that is deciding all this. And then, and then but I have to also believe that some element of determination, some element of skill came into this and, and, and verve and courage, you know? It doesn't feel like that can only be destiny. Well, of course, that's the, that's the, that's the secret sauce, right? It's the secret sauce, everything that you just touched on. Confidence, ex becoming an expert, uh, trusting yourself. Um, you know, all those things matter uh do, doing the groundwork matters um to allow destiny to unfold uh and i think that th those are big things including your own ego you know i i've been i've been blessed i i've had great mentors in my life great coaches uh men that have helped me uh pull me up when i and i and i like serious help like pointed things out to me that like hey kid you you you, you, this is not good for you. You, you should shape up. Um, you know, I, and, and really it, I tell you that I was at an event last year and all of my soccer slash football coaches were there. All my ski coaches were there. And, you know, I mean, really that's, that was amazing. Right. And I, I just try to do what I do, what I learned from them. And these days, you know, now now that I'm, I was on a radio show the other day, and a guy said, "Dan, it's amazing at you, uh, at, at your age, you're still doing." <laughs> so I started to laugh, but my mentor, my my mission statement is to help others do what I've already done, and I think that that frames uh, and gives me a purpose to why I do it, uh, um, because I know that the ones that helped me really helped me in life, in sport. Uh, but they were teaching me something else, right? They were teaching me something else. I didn't know it at the time, but they were teaching me something else. And they're my friends today. I mean, that's that's unbelievable. Uh, to stay in touch with people, I think, is part of that that sort of destiny path to to pay homage to people. Uh, you can't forget the ones. So uh, I, I think it's a may. You know, of course, it is the secret sauce. Um, you know, in my book, 30 Years in a White Haze, I talked about uh, surviving a storm 38 hours, uh, 11 people in perished in Russia at, you know, at altitude at 17,000, 18,000 feet and 11 people perished. And my friend uh, and journalist died in a snow cave alone in the exact same situation I was in. Uh, 
he, he did not he, i somebody discovered my snow cave and saved my life but but nobody discovered claudia's webs yeah cave and uh he didn't survive um and so that's that's like it's a, the veil is very thin the veil is very thin and uh I don't know that he was meant to pass that day, but uh, but I know that we were in the same situation, and somebody somebody stumbled upon me. So, that, that so was, that that would seem to indicate that there was an element of luck. I, I think, of course, there's always that element of uh, of luck, uh, or 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 yeah, luck, or 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 life <laughs> element of life uh, uh, that happens. And, um, you know, we all owe a debt of gratitude to random acts, right? Um, and, and things that have kept us going, whether it's a car accident or whatever. Um, but, but I know now in, in looking back at my time in that snow cave, uh, having believed that I was dead when, when Sasha found me, thinking that I, and knowing that I had met my guardian angel uh, and now kind of understanding what, what the messages were, you know, like, uh, you know, the messages for me were, you know, uh, follow, 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 will lead you. And I came to realize they, those, those spirits or whatever, they led me through the crevasse field. Um, and I, 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 come to believe that maybe they've always been doing that I, I just was too arrogant to see it so you were as i recall brought up in boston yeah right and yeah. uh i'm wondering i i, I how religious are you is, has this yeah. made you come closer to god or what? yeah you know I, my, my family we we are baptized in catholicism and uh there's a lot of priests in, in the family throughout the yeah. generations and uh and of course my parents were devout uh catholics and they dragged all eight kids to church you know uh but to me you know as a kid you know you don't you don't appreciate that or you don't know why you're there uh, you're just thinking about the jelly donut that's coming afterwards you know um lucky you and after you know and and like all kids you know i went off on my own search i went off on my own search um but after Russia, I I I went back to the church. Um, you know, my my dad had gone. My dad it was a physician, and he led pilgrimages to Lourdes, France. And uh, as a very young boy, he would bring me on these pilgrimages, and I would be have total care of cerebral palsy, palsy children that I had to feed, change their diapers live with them 24 seven and care for these kids. And I was a young teenager uh, when I did my first trip. And, uh, you know, there I learned so much about life and fragility of life. And uh, I learned to be grateful and I learned to communicate with kids that were nonverbal and uh, change their diapers and feed them and, and, and become friends with them. And, uh, and I, I got to see them have hope. I got to see them have joy. Uh, I got to them, see them respond to uh, to the holy water at Lourdes, to, to walk into the grotto at Lourdes. Um, that, that left a huge impression on me. Um, and so 
you know, I, I, I definitely am somebody who, who believes, you know, and, uh, and I know that I, I've seen the benefit of that for myself, you know, but, but, you know, in a lot of my talks and, and uh, when I talk on spiritual things and when I give lectures on, uh, or talks on, on, on faith matters, uh, you know, Jonah is my favorite teenager, right? Because Jonah converts through disobedience and he converts through obedience. So, you know, I always tell kids every time I talk to them, look, you can do what you want, but you're going to, somebody's going to watch you screw up and get better. And somebody's going to watch you do something good and get better. So you get to decide what example you want to lead. Right. And um, that's an exciting thing in life to realize, yeah, I failed, but somebody's learned from that example. And I too can be redeemed. Right. I can be the belly of the whale experience, you know, for me was Russia and find, you know, I've had that in business. Uh, I've had that in relationship as well. Uh, so I think at those moments, you, you have an option. Uh, you can despair or gaze, gaze to the heavens. Uh, then, well, since you've mentioned it, let's just talk a little bit about that Russian experience. Yeah. I mean, for those who don't know you, you've basically, you and essentially you and your brother, as I read it, invented extreme skiing or at least you brought it to the world, you, in this capacity, you went to do the most documentable, wildly outrageous things on skis, which included jumping off walls, as opposed to just precipices. And, um, and, and, yet, and, and it seems like uh, somehow the crowning experience in, in some ways seems to be the, the deepest pit of falling in this crevasse for and spending 38 hours by yourself uh, before getting found by someone you, I suppose, in the end of the day, believed was an KGB agent. Yeah, exactly. So spending 38 hours by yourself, I've, I've spoken to a few people who've survived outrageous things, but it's you're alone. Very, there's, there's no companionship. There's, there's no light there through that. How do, how do you, what, what do you bring out of that? And, and, and when you're talking to somebody who is in maybe not a cave, but in a dark place, what, what lessons or what light can you shine for them? Well, well the, the hero's journey is one of, uh, of self-discovery. The, the hero's journey, we all have to slay our dragon, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the rite of passage that's been in every, every civilization. The, the rite of passage to slay a dragon to go on the hero's journey uh, and return, but not the same. That's the key, right? Is to return, not the same. A new perspective, a new paradigm, a new belief. And that, that's as old as time itself. Um, I was thinking about this very topic today out on my run. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't listen to music when I ski. I don't listen to music when I run. I want to be alone. I want to see where my brain goes. I want to, I want to do battle. Uh, can I persevere? I do that when I swim. Can I make the next lap? Uh, I, 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 that is the name of life. And so 
those opportunities is what we should, I think, seek. I think that this is what's taking it away. Uh, yeah, and the mobile and, and, and technology. So, you know, we're never alone. We're never without noise. We're never without something. But but what happens when we travel within? And I know for me, in, in that situation in the snow cave, I was alone with myself. And I had been before. Now, maybe not for 38 hours. But at sea, sailing, uh, on endurance runs, uh, I've been pushed and tested before. Those those voices, those situations, uh, coaches saying, you know, finish what you started. My mom saying, be home for dinner. All those voices, all those, all that energy is there for me to tap into and to listen to and and to to move. And I can tell you, I've been depressed. I've had to pick myself up when I didn't want to pick myself up. I've had to get out of bed when I didn't want to get out of bed. All those things, right? Uh, move a muscle change of thought so in those times of focusing on keeping my hands warm or my nose or my feet uh the intention of of that task uh is itself a a form of prayer and within itself a form of transformation and of course blacking out passing out having hallucinations having visions all of that you start to wonder over time what's real what's not real the 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 other climber i spent uh time with that i helped rescue the next day and was in the hospital with uh who came to visit me 25 years after that accident all he could say was i kept talking about this experience i had in the cave and and i i kept talking about it because when you have those experiences you don't know if you're crazy or not because you don't know who to tell Nobody's there to validate. So it either happened to you or it didn't happen to you. You either imagined it or you didn't imagine it. And which is true. And does it matter? What what what's real? The transformation. What 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 who are you upon the return of the journey of the hero's journey? Uh, so for me, the perspective was, you know, I I've got a I've got a shot now. My entire adult life, everything I've accomplished stem from that day because it was such a radical change of perspective um and i didn't know that all at once it was revealed to me over time i just know that that perspective changed me i started to make other changes and those changes that energy became something else and and i tie it back to that Well, I, I, um, I, I, I suspect that your survival was also somehow informed by some techniques and some knowledge as well. Because if, if it were me stuck there, I wouldn't know whether it's my toes or my fingers I should worry about first. I wouldn't, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't know how to make water out of snow, you know, kind yeah. of thing. I, you must have some kind of techniques, survival techniques that helped. You, you know, you do, but, but of course, at altitude, uh, it's hard. It's hard to think straight. It's hard to uh, do. You know, I, as the story goes, I, I built the snow cave for, for three people, my other climbing partners that abandoned me. Uh, so I, I do think in, in doing for others, uh, there's a benefit. 
Now they didn't, they didn't want to be in my cave for whatever reasons. And they've never explained to me why. Although one guy did say, uh, you didn't build a very good cave. I thought you were going to die. So maybe that's why he didn't choose to come. But who benefited from all that extra activity? I did because I stayed warm. Uh, because I, I kept working to make the cave bigger, not knowing that they weren't coming or they had already left. So, you know, there is benefit sometime uh, in that. And I remember thinking, because my brother was on this trip, that my death was going to be really hard on him. Uh, and I came to understand in those moments, in those hours in the cave, that death is a human thing, that I was going to be okay. I felt secure. I felt warm. I felt looked after. Um, and you and I've you weren't scared of death. I wasn't scared. And, and I've I've said this and I've written it about it a lot. I was actually happy. Um, and I was or, okay. Or, to use your word, a place of joy. I was at a place of joy. I was content, and I I had that real clear vision. Was like, wow, my brother's going to have to go home alone. That's going to be hard for him. And, and uh, yeah. you talk about these two people who abandon you. I, I, yeah. I mean, I can't help but imagine if I were in your position, I would have felt a little bit of uh, an, uh, antagonism mm -hmm. or something negative about the two who abandoned you at that time. Did that go through your mind? And where are you with that thought? Well, um, when the storm settled down, uh, Sasha, who found me, we then rescued a group of 14, of which those two were part of that group of 14. And, and 25 years later, one came to visit me. And uh, he came with his wife. And uh, I did what I would do with any, with any guest. I took him on the lake. And I took him around New Hampshire. And I showed him the mountains. And I brought him to my home. And I made a dinner. And I made dessert and I poured him a cup of tea. And when it was all said and done at the end of the day, I said, you know, I've always wanted to ask you a question. Why? Why did you abandon me? And it was one of those times where without malice, and I had clearly demonstrated throughout the whole day. That you were okay. Yeah. yeah. He, he did not remember, which was my memory of him. So it validated my memory of him, that he was freezing to death himself. He was passed out. And, and the other guy must have taken pity on him and taking him. Now, the other guy, who was the lawyer of the sponsor, who said the next day, I'm surprised to see you alive. You didn't dig a very nice cave who later after we rescued him and got him down said to my brother that he saved my life and then went on because 1990 perestroika and the ussr you couldn't just leave you had to leave on the date of your visa after we got the medical clearance to get an a, a, the visa changed he talked his way onto the medical flight to europe back to paris and then showed up the next day with his child to say and to point to me and the other 
these are the boys who I saved their lives. I have to tell you, I broke a Coke bottle and mugged him for his money and kicked him the hell out of that room. Uh, that was arrogance for him. Okay. Well, and the, I mean, the stories in his mind, you wonder, and he's a lawyer. And he's a lawyer. So, you know, was he protecting the company or whatever? And uh, so, and of course, you know, we never heard from him again. So, uh look there you know his his loss yeah i i you know and on on so many levels on so many levels um and uh you know when you you where you you were with you know in london at my presentation or in other situations i don't know sometimes in life you don't need to go far for validation right you just look around and you see it so That's it. for him i don't know what his life's like Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Indeed. I, I, so I want to, Dan, um, thanks for sharing that. Um, skiing. Yeah. Thrilling activity. I certainly feel like a, I was a decent skier. I skied a month a year for basically 20 years. So I got myself knowing how to ski. And there's this idea of you as a youngster skiing. And I think of me as a youngster and the stupid stuff that I was doing. <laughs> And the, you know, whoa, could have gone wrong kind of thing. Right. And then, and then you go back out there and, and you sort of somehow a little bit invincible. And then there's this other thing, which is need for a bigger rush, do something bigger. This idea of adrenaline and, yeah. uh, and, yeah. and you would have thought you could learn from your stupidity, but you huh. know, as you're, when you're younger, it just keeps on pushing you and you go further and, and then you want to do more and do bigger. I mean, is, is that sort of like a slippery slope? Or when, and how do you curtail that? Or is it just a, a nonstop need to always do more and better? And when does age kick in? <laughs> well, near, uh, what's it called? They're called uh, it's called near-death syndrome. Near-death experiences. Uh, near death, yeah, right, right. And what's the age is 16 to 28, right? Typically. Um, and there's like three, my memory of this is like, there's three cures, right? Death, near death and, and kids, right? Like uh, there's, there's a dose of reality that comes with that. I think that the adrenaline piece, look, I love it. That, that might like look like a business deal today. That, that, that might look like a, a morning run with a sunrise, whatever it is. Like I'm still, I'm still open to it. I still want it. You know, I, I still, I, I want the endorphins. Um, and it, it does make me uh, actually more sane. It makes me easier to deal with uh, if I do it. If I don't do it, I'm kind of a pain in the neck, you know? Um, so there's that. And I think, I think when you're, when you're young, uh, the belief that you're invincible 
is why so many people do so many great things uh, and they conquer great things. I, you think of a musician, uh, artist, and, adventurous, and adventurous. They're there. Right. And they're so young and they're going and you're like, yeah, right, mate. Like sport professionals, footballers, uh, they're all there. Right. They, they, they don't know. And not knowing is the key. I always say the beauty of youth is not knowing and, and good that you shouldn't know. Actually, you shouldn't know because once you know, there's really no going back, whether it's an injury you can't or unknow it. you can't unknow it. You've felt it. It hurt. It, it, you question it, you know, you know, the, the knowing is hard. And, and uh, so of course age creeps in and, and you start to know a little bit more, but, when you look at, I love this question because when you win a gold medal at the Olympics, of which I've never done, but I've interviewed a lot of gold medalists, and they'll tell you, you know, I was just in the moment. I was just in the moment and came together. It was the unknowing, right? There was the, the, the magic. What's the magic sauce? The next four years later, when they win the silver, they all say the same thing. I trained harder this time. I was more prepared. Preparing doesn't equal winning. Preparing doesn't equal excellence. What was different? The different was the knowing, knowing that they might not win, knowing that uh, they had something to lose. Um, and it's, it's why it's so incredible to repeat anything. And it, it really, your hat's off to anybody who's been able to do it because They've been able to enter into that space where whether it was the not knowing or the not caring or I'm going to get it done or the expertise and the non-judgment. I've spoken to athletes who have been in the starting gate of the Olympics yelling at, your, at themselves, where are you? I need you back. I need you now. Because there's a separation between that youth that didn't know and didn't care and won and the, the, the veteran who's been training hard. And so it's a, it's a very fragile thing. All things that are of value are fragile. And a lot of times it's either the coach or somebody that needed to justify their own belief system and ruined that sauce, you know, there was something about the technique that some expert wanted to change, which they never quite got right. Or my favorite one is, you know, Hannah Carney in Sochi didn't, didn't repeat her gold medal mainly because the boys went first that day in the moguls and the girls went second. And the course was a little longer, a little, the ruts were a little different and she had one bobble cost her the gold. It was one bobble, but in her analysis, it was, was you know that that was just a touch off and uh that's all it takes whether she knew that going in or what i don't know well so i uh, taking another sport where uh which i know well is is uh tennis and yeah you know you, you win let's say a wimbledon and and then you have accumulated the experience that it takes to push through and get over yeah. that mistake you made in the first game back wild backhand or whatever and 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 the the winner mentality to to you know win the hard the, you know the decisive points 
how does that work in, in skiing? I mean, because the problem is with skiing is that every slope is going to be a different slope. Yeah. Uh, the flags are going to be put differently. The rut will be bigger or smaller. The moguls may be a little bit more compact or not. You come into it at five kilometers faster and then you, you, that changes your trajectory. Then you have to invent as you go. I mean, of course, there's invention in every sport, but what about the, 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 the knowledge that you know how to win? Champions. Champions. You know, tennis, uh, any, any sport where there's a tra champion, um, there, there's a belief that, that they will win. Um, and there's, there's sometimes where that belief carries them through, and there's sometimes a course where they don't. But the, the span of the career tells the tale, right? I tell, you know, and, and, and in some sports, Americans aren't great at this, by the way. We're one hit wonders. Hey, we got it. I cash in. I'm out, you know, or I didn't do it again, but get I, my sponsorships and my advertisements. Yeah. And yeah. I, I see, I see athletes uh, from around the world in multiple sports uh, persevering and that's who they are. They are that track star. They are uh, that sprinter. They are that swimmer and that's who they are. Um, and I tell a lot of athletes go back and do it again. Like, go back and do it again don't don't be a one-hit wonder uh dominate dominate and we see that in tennis we see the ones that have dominated and then they're killers you know they can be down but they come back uh they know when to hit uh they so it, that that's a whole nother level right and we see it in skiing too we have you know whether michaela schifrin or others are dominating um and really good at peak performance. I mean, I, you and I spoke briefly about this, but, but peak performance is a really special thing, right? Uh, you, one, you have to have a purpose. You have to have the will, the commitment and the technique, which comes first, which comes first. And the peak performer kind of knows you need all four. Yeah. The, this idea you talk about a fair amount in the book is the idea of getting into flow. Yeah. And um, my, I mean, occasionally I've dabbled with flow in sports, but I've certainly have, I've, I, I've experienced flow more in an intellectual exercise, typically on psychedelics when I'm, you know, flying on some LSD or something. Uh, and, and, but I also have had flow without intoxication and it's a beautiful thing. I, 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 I can feel it. I, I don't know how to make it happen. Others are much better at that, but when you're in, in flow, I, I mean, to what extent can you make flow happen, Dan, when you're skiing? You, you can, you can make flow happen when you don't judge yourself. See, this is the key, right? So how do you enter into the flow state? in a non-judgeable, through observation, not judgment. So what, what, what does that look like? Well, it's a perfect day. It's a perfect day. Uh, for what? For finding my flow. Uh, it could be, it doesn't matter the weather, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to judge that. So the flow state, when you, when you see athletes enter into the float state multiple times, champions, the best, you know, they understand a couple of things. One, whatever happens, uh, this is 
if they win, they're the best that day. They were the best that day. Most most top athletes understand the moment was theirs. Uh, they may have a track record of repeating that moment, but they will break it down. Most other athletes that, that, that describe that flow state, they come from a point of observing themselves in the action, not doing, not react. They're, they're actually just, wow, I did it. Hey, I got it. I can't believe it. Whoa, hey, another one, right? All of that is flow state. So uh, understanding what my best skiing is when I'm hovering above myself, observing myself do it. Um, it happens less and less, I must say these days but uh, a couple of days a year i'm like oh yeah this is the day you're back this is the day you know um and then there's other days where yeah it's it's not um but for the for the athlete for the champion who enters into that space uh i i think there's a place where they go where they're just trusting their body they're trusting their body they know that the body will do it Skiing is very interesting because of speed and touch of the ski, the length of the ski, the feel of the ski. Golfers with tennis players, they'll tell you they, they can feel it. When they're hitting in the sweet spot, they, they feel when the golfers hit, there's something going on. They don't, they just know it. Today's my day. Uh, I've talked to a lot of athletes. Today was my day. Uh, I knew I was going to win when I woke up. Um, and so, you know, that sort of experience is really quite something. Um, it's not to say that's the only way to win, but specifically around flow state, the non-judgment, the observation is kind of key. So what does that look like? That looks like failing and not being upset because that's where you really need to not judge. You know, was it a bad shot? I don't know. Give me the next one. I'm going to get the next one. So again, going back to that idea that it's darkest before the dawn, uh, you know, and of course, Henry David Thoreau said, you know, I, I don't want a cabin passage, bro. I want to go before the mast, you know? Uh, and, and I, that whole idea of put me before the mast, um, bring it on. And I think that's part of it. Having a front row seat. Yeah. Um, Getting getting towards the end here, uh, Dan. Thing I do want to talk about notions of safety and risk. But just before that, there was something you you said in your book, which is, uh, I never have a contingency plan. Plan B is Plan A, yeah. and I want to mix that with your upbringing, um, yeah. with your your parents, um, obviously also the the life or the partnership you had with your brother. But um, what what about hunger? And, and is that something that you, you feel also carried you? Not that you were hungry, but that you were, things didn't come to you on a silver plate. Yeah, I think, I think, uh, again, all, all accomplishments that, that are hard fought are, are appreciated, you know, um, my, my folks, you know, that if they had had their choice, uh, their boys would not have been pro skiers, you know, mm. um, they, they had other things in mind for us. Uh, but, but this, well, he was this, a doctor. So you imagine yeah, a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. You know, go, you know, but, but, you know, they, my mom always said, you know, 
look, my mom charged me rent. So like there was no free living, you know? Um, and she said, you, you, you go make a business out of this. you don't be all talk, you know? Um, and I, I went to my professors and my colleges and I asked them for help and I, I sought advice. Um, so hungry is, you know, in most sports, they'll tell you in boxing, they'll tell you in uh, cage fighting, wrestling, you know, look, growing up with an edge on the streets helps survival helps being in that position of survival helps, uh, you know, this you're, you're fighting your way out of the situation, bro. Like that's kind of the goal. Right. Um, and that, that gets you so far in life. It, it, it can win you some matches, but it, it's not going to bring it home. You, there needs to be some refinement in that. Right. So yeah, you got to be hungry. Uh, but this idea of life without a net, I mean, I, I, I talk about it a lot from a, a guiding point of view. Uh, in, in the, Europe, the tradition of alpinism, alpinism in, in Europe and the European guides, they are their own rescue. Hmm. They're their own rescue. So they're making all their decisions based on that. That is hungry. That, that is a hunger of, of survival for their clients and others. Uh, there's an, in, in Alaska where the heli skiing is and all this sort of thing. Those guys are relying on helis for rescues, not the guide. They're, that's a different approach. That conversation I always have on my annual trips up there, I don't know that it really lands with them. But when I'm in the Alps, I am my own rescue. I recognize that. I have friends. I have radios. I know where the other groups are. But they're looking to me to take care of business. And I think that's the respect you need. What's the level of responsibility? And I, I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, the legal or the lawyer has a has a a part in playing on having a, a safety net, because it's it seems, and that was the the conversation you and I had, and I, I wanted to go back into that this idea of yes. of safety because yeah. I don't know if you've ever read the coddling of the American mind by Jonathan Haidt. Or who who coined the term safetyism, and and the notion that not only are we trying to write small print to protect our asses on every little thing from a litigious standpoint, but we are making five year olds go out on a tricycle with a helmet. We we worry about a kid scraping his or her knee or don't go into the street because it's dangerous. Don't, don't talk to strangers because they're dangerous. Um, and and uh, it, it feels like we're, we're coddling so much. And, and uh, of course, you, there's responsibility, there's sensibility, you know, being sensible about it. But how do you evaluate risk and Obviously, when you got clients, you 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 take you have responsibility. That's a heavy load, but they're also going to say, "Well, hey, listen, Dan, let's do something you've never done before." Oh, they love that. Yeah, <laughs> of course, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it, it, these days we see a lot of accidents in the Alps uh, from expert guides with long-term clients. So, what's going on there? Uh, what's going on there is ex there's a lot more accessibility, and the long-term guides with long-term clients are stepping out a little bit more to deliver. Right. that untracked piece of snow right we, we one feel more one bigger one more one bigger we there's an obligation that that that, that sort of like well they paid me and, and I'll, I'll go take a look right 
Uh, so, and that's a real, real, real thing. And, and the hardest people to, to guide are family and friends. I mean, those are the toughest ones. Oh, come on, mate. You know, that sort of thing. And uh, that's very hard. Um, when you see technology being marketed, it's isolating. Somebody's on a beach with a computer that has connection. Well, that's not my idea of being on the beach, quite honestly. But that's how technology is being sold. So we're raising generations now of kids that feel that connectability is, is responsibility. That connecting is safety. They checked in with mommy before they bought a whatever, you know, they, they don't know. You, you talked about free will. Forget about free will. They don't have the power to make decisions for themselves. So that's really crazy. What we know in America is that obesity and video games are on the polar end of this of the polar opposites, right? The more extreme sports are doing double backflips, the more kids are doing it on computers. But both is doing the same thing. They're identifying, look, the video gamer is saying, look what I did. The guy doing the backflips on the bike said, look what I did, right? But we see the computer and the obesity tied together, okay? The mentality, they both think they're doing. So it's super interesting. But what's missing from that is the middle. The, the, the ball fields are empty with spontaneous games. There's no cricket matches. There's no baseball. There's no pickup games. Everything's organized, right? So the middle kind of fell out in this struggle. And I, I've got a project with all this in mind. And uh, I think it's super important. So, you know, what we spoke about in London that night was how do you provide an authentic uh, hero's journey for a generation that doesn't know it exists or for parents that think it's too risky for the kids to become self-actualized? That's the real issue. They, they don't want the kids to be self-actualized. I say, look, I, you know, parents come to me all the time. Johnny got in trouble. I say, thank God. Right. Thank goodness. Because if you don't have a big confliction, you're not going to have a strong conviction. And the conflict of, do you love me? Will you love me if I screw up? Will you stick with me, mommy and daddy, if I'm a screw up? We'll, we'll pay dividends because in the end, there's going to be a very convicted kid that might know that I'm anchored in love. There is this notion, I was talking to a neuroscientist a couple of days ago, about the need to embody the emotion and the experience. And if the experience is, is virtual, um, you, you're not accumulating a, uh, a tapestry of resilience to deal with the next big piece of shit when, not if, it happens. And one of the things, you know, of course, is amazing about skiing is freedom. It is one of the things that skiing truly makes you feel like you have. And every turn you make, you have the freedom of the, to, to cut here, to, to take this line here. And there's sort of agency in this moment. And, and you feel the, the air whizzing by you, maybe with a helmet, maybe not. But... Um, this freedom of agency and when it's all sort of prescribed how you have to do things, this lack of freedom 
I'm not going to say lack of free will, but sort of overprotectionism. How do you see skiing? What's happening on your slopes? How, yeah. how are you, what happens when you get a parent say, well, you don't take my child to do anything <laughs> naughty or. Yeah. Well, I want to tie that back to a question you asked earlier about being raised and, and having faith. Um, when, when I talk to parents and they, you, they, they're teaching their kids, they can read before they were two. They can do this and no, they can math and no, but they never, talk to them anything, they, they never talk to them about anything about God. I pretty much say, well, don't teach them science either. Hmm. Like give the kid a chance, a foundational chance to know right from wrong. I don't care how you frame that. For me, it's God. I, you can frame it spiritual, however you want to frame that. But give a kid a chance to understand right and wrong. Give a chance, a kid to understand what that means, okay? Uh, because from all that thing, when they go through those confliction years, those teenage years where they're testing boundaries, the conviction that they're going to have when they get out of that, that in their early 20s, hopefully, the mid-20s, is based in right and wrong and self-perseverance and self-care and self-love and building a life for themselves. It's not The goal is not to have 29-year-olds living at home right? So how do we launch these kids and what belief system do you want? Because to your point, it's not if, it's when you fall off the high wire and how do you pick yourself up? So here it is, right? It's not if, it's when, and then there comes the how. How are you going to do it? Because you know what? You and I both know around every corner, there's not somebody willing to help you uh, in that cave, in that belly of the whale moment. You are the one that has to know how to move forward when it looks dark. And of course, we want kids to ski, to sail, to do these individual sports where they have the freedom to succeed and fail and make the choice to do it differently the next time. I remember being a young kid, five, seven years old, out on my little dinghy in irons, pointing into the wind, couldn't get the boat back to the dock. When the instructor came out, he did not tell me what to do. He said, it's getting late, dude. Get that boat in. Figure it out. And, you know, I had to bear off. I had the back wind. I had a, I had a sail back to the dock, and he was not going to tow me. And I did. I did. And in those moments, you realize I can. And it felt like I never could. So at what age do you want to do that? early as early as you can for any young boy or girl to realize wow i'm not failing in this moment i can succeed beyond this moment that that's really the lesson that all sports teaches all sport teaches that dan absolutely phenomenal last words <laughs> great way to wrap up absolutely delicious conversation dan love your energy i um i admire your journey i love what you continue to do and as you so rightly say you are aging like fine wine dan egan how can uh, anyone go get your book 30 years in a white haze catch up with what you're doing find out how to learn if there's an opportunity ever to hire you to ski 
and have that experience, uh, go to your resort. What, what, what are some of the links you'd like for me to put in the back end? Uh, I appreciate that. Just uh, check me out at dan-egan.com uh, for, for the main website with all, all my activities and all the books. Uh, and of course, you can always find me at skiclinics.com for my worldwide adventures. Yeah, and you are in not a few, but many films as well. Dan, absolute pleasure. I do hope there'll be another chance to uh, uh, cut the, uh, or not shred some slopes because I would be way, way behind in your exhaust fumes, uh, but uh, another time to share. So much, uh, so many thanks for coming on, Dan. Uh, thanks so much. I really appreciated it. And I hope we do ski. Super. So a really heartfelt thanks for listening to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast service. As ever, ratings and reviews are the real currency of podcasts. And if you're really inspired, I'm accepting donations on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You'll find the show notes with over 2,100 blog posts on minterdial.com on topics ranging from leadership to branding, tech, and marketing tips. Check out my documentary film and books, including the last one, the second edition of Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence that came out in April 2023. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Convinced man, put me to the test. 
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.